The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Play a round of golf with only a seven iron. You can do these things, but at what cost? You'll never go very far, very fast, for very long. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ all by yourself. You can, but at what cost? Such solitary walking is not God's will for your life. Last week we addressed Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 and learned how we each must walk in unity. A unity that has been gloriously gained in the gospel. It's real, it's true, but yet it's a unity that also must be vigorously and earnestly maintained and displayed in the public arena for all to see that God might be fully glorified. Verse 6 concluded that extended treatment of the oneness of the faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, 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 over, in and through everybody. United in the body. Then we come to this morning's text, verse 7, but. There's a contrast set up there. But, though we believers are all unified and are all common objects of God's affection and His work, but... We are not all the same. He has worked in us, given us different grace. Verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a difference here in the grace that he's given us. Now, it's not a different saving grace. Assuming that you have actually trusted Christ, you're no different than any other believer. You have been equally saved. You have been equally grafted into his family. You have been equally made an heir. You are equally forgiven. All the same in that regard. No different saving grace, but there is a different grace. Some sort of grace has been given in a different measure, in a different amount. What he's talking about here is the grace of spiritual gifts. Given by Christ to Christians after they are saved. There's a difference. Not all the gifts are the same. The New Testament lists many of them. And even the very same gift is not given in the same amount to everybody. It's a different measure. Differences among us. So there's a wide diversity of gifts graced to the church. That's what our passage is about this morning. We're still talking about unity. But now it's a unity with a diversity. Diversity of gifts. I want to sum up this morning's main point in one sentence. It would be this. Christ has given various gifts to his church. And we must each together utilize them. Christ has given various gifts in various ways, in various amounts to his church. And we each together in community. This is a joint thing. We each together must utilize them. We must seize the gifts. We must hone them and then deploy them in our midst and avail ourselves of other people's gifts that are deployed in our midst. Christ has given 
to the body various diverse gifts, and we each together must utilize them. So we're going to look at this morning. We're going to do it through three different angles. We're going to look at Christ's gifts and their purpose through three different angles. And the first one is really a foundational angle. And then after we've looked at those three angles, we're going to talk briefly about some implications, maybe some applications, if you will. That's what we're going to do, but first let me read the text, Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Our first angle this morning serves as the foundation, as I said, the foundation for, the, for Christ giving these gifts. Here it is, Christ has the right to give gifts as he chooses. Christ has the right to give gifts as he chooses. Look at verses 8 through 10. Now, as I already mentioned, verse 7 introduces the idea of spiritual gifts while pointing out that we all have received different gifts, different measure. Paul then moves to ground that statement in a particular reality. Christ has the right to give gifts of different varieties and in different amounts because he is sovereign over all of the creation, over all of the fallen creation and the forces of evil, and also over all of the fallen but redeemed creation, the new creation, the church. He reigns sovereign over all of these things. He can give gifts as he chooses, and Paul moves to prove that from Psalm 68. Now, most of our English translations will somehow indicate that verse 8 is a reference back to Psalm 68, and verses 9 and 10 are an explanation of it. Perhaps you've got some italics, maybe some indentation or some parentheses or something. There's a lot I could talk about here in this, in this little section. What I'm going to focus on is what Paul ends up doing with the psalm. Generally speaking, New Testament writers look back, read the psalms, and they see in them Christ. Christ prophesied, Christ speaking, 
It's exactly what Paul does here. Paul looks at Psalm 68 and takes a psalm that was originally about God waging war physically to relieve his people from their physical oppressors, and he says that's about Christ waging war to relieve his people from their spiritual oppressors. That's what he does with Psalm 68. Verse 8, Ephesians 4, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. The imagery here, both in the psalm and in Ephesians, is that of a victory triumph, a victory parade, made famous by the Romans, but other people use it as well. The idea is that the returning victorious conqueror rides back through his capitals, up, up the main street towards the high point of the city, whether it be where his palace is, or the big temple is, or some prominent point. And as he rides through the streets, the crowds laud him. They throw flowers at him. They sing praises to his name as he's riding in his chariot. And behind him, he drags in chains the surviving defeated enemies, their generals or their kings or whatever. And the crowds jeer them. They throw stones at them. And they all gloat in the fact that at the top of this hill, at the end of this road, all that awaits them is their execution or their imprisonment or worse, their torturous imprisonment. It's very, very clear who is in charge in the victory triumph. And then behind these subjected captives, either literally in the very same parade, or figuratively speaking, what comes in after them, is all of the plunder. The, the conqueror would bring in, in his parade, wagon loads of loot that he'd gathered in from the battlefield, or tribute that had been paid by the now subjected enemies. The idea is that to the victors belong the spoils, and here it all is, people, look at it. That's what's going on in verse 8. In verses 9 and 10, the imagery is explained in light of Christ. Paul reasons that if he ascended, he also must previously have descended down to the lower regions, down to the earth, that is, perhaps into the grave. At his incarnation, Christ came down to the earth. He humbled himself to come down to us. And he went up to the cross and there fought the great battle at which he defeated our great enemy. He cast him down and won. And then he was raised up. At his resurrection, he was raised not just up out of the grave, but up into the heavens, high above all things, as, cha as chapter 1 says. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He has ascended up, his enemies having been defeated, Satan's head having been crushed, death having been dealt its mortal blow. He has risen up and he sits reigning in sovereign power, filling all things with his glory and his might. This one now who, as it were, has marched back into heaven, dragging behind him our enemies, Satan in sin and death, this conquering, reigning, seated hero now turns to dish out the loot as he chooses, to whom he chooses, in whatever way he chooses, he is in charge. He reigns sovereign and according to his own wisdom and grace, he will give in his own measure 
to his people these gifts. Christ gives gifts to his church as he chooses. The analogy is not exact. Jesus didn't first get the gifts from Satan and then give them back to us. The point is not to figure out where the gifts came from. The point is to establish Christ's right to give them as he chooses. He's the conqueror of Psalm 68, says Paul. He reigns sovereign over all things. Christ has the right to give whatever gifts he wants and in whatever way he chooses. He has crushed our enemies and he blesses us now sovereignly and wisely in grace. And it's important for us to get this first foundational point because he's about to talk about the rest of the gifts and he's going to establish a certain priority to them. And it's important that we not, that we watch ourselves, that we not let jealousy grow up in us or disappointment grow up in us as we look around and see how the sovereign Christ has chosen to dish out the gifts. It's important that trust rise up in us and that we determine in our hearts to believe him, to be gracious towards us, to be blessing us in these things, to know what he's doing and to have a plan as to how they're all going to work together. It's important here at the beginning that we see, yes, Christ gives them out in a variety of different ways, He's sovereign and he's wise and he's good and he's gracious. Trust him. Believe him with that. So we need to get out of this first foundational angle. A belief that what you get is not the issue. What you do with it is. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant to every faithful servant. Trust him to know what he's doing. He has the right, and he is gracious and good. With that, we now move into the second angle, and this is really the meat of the argument. Verse 7 affirmed that each one of us who is a believer has been spiritually gifted from Christ. Nobody gets a lump of coal in their stocking. Nobody gets shut out here. Everybody gets something, or maybe some things. But given that he has the right to give whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, what has he actually done? What did he do? That's the second angle. Christ gives some to equip others. Christ gives some to equip others. Verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Notice that it does not say that he gave to some the gift of apostleship and to some the gift of prophecy and to some the gift of evangelism. doesn't say that. doesn't say he gave gifts to some people. It says he gave people with those gifts. Now, of course, they had to have received the gift sometime prior, but the emphasis here, the point is that he gave these gifted people. He gave some to be, the NIV says. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists. He gave these people, but to whom? Well, it's not stated, but it is clearly implied. He gave these people to the church. The church as a whole is a recipient of these gifted people. Take the apostles and prophets first. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, and in chapter 3, verse 5, we looked at this phrase. It's... it's Joined together often, the apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets. Here it is again for the third time in Ephesians. 
When Paul talks about these people, he means, as we discussed earlier, the foundational first century apostles and prophets. Those particular people that God called out, drew to himself, and then revealed to them what became the scriptures. He revealed to them the mystery of the gospel. That glorious news that was previously unknown. The news about how men and women can be joined back together again with God. How they can be forgiven. How they can have their affections and their hearts renewed to be like Christ. It was not previously known and understood. It was a mystery. And God called these people to himself. Revealed it to them and then sent them out to preach it. To plant the church and to write it down. They are the foundation stones of the new temple building, says chapter 2. They were a gift to the church, a foundational starting gift to the church. And so were the evangelists. An evangelist is, what do you know, somebody who has some particular giftings in evangelism. There are a lot of people with this gift. I think what's being emphasized here in this passage is somebody who kind of functions in an office as an evangelist. We are all supposed to share our faith. We are all called to be witnesses. But these people, I'm persuaded, are people who are kind of on the job as evangelists, who are officially doing it. Perhaps a modern word that we might use would be missionary. The missions implies always going overseas, it seems. These are people who are somehow taking this written gospel and spreading it on purpose, deliberately, actively. They're taking the gospel and they are given by God to the church to expand the borders of the church, particularly into places where it is not already preached. Evangelists. Then he also gave the pastors and teachers. Literally, it's the shepherds and teachers. The grammar at this point of verse 11 ties pastor and teacher together. You can see in your English Bibles, if you're looking at the NIV, you'll notice that it has this phrase, some to be, some to be, some to be, some to be. And the last one, pastors and teachers, are grouped together after one of those some to be's. They're connected. There's a reason for that. They're, they're similar, but they're not identical. One extremely significant piece of pastoring, of shepherding, is teaching. Leading and guiding the flock by teaching the scriptures to them. All pastors must be teachers. It's part of the job. But not all teachers must be pastors. Take, for instance, seminary professors. Or maybe leaders of, of adult Sunday school classes. Or the K. Arthurs and the Beth Moores of, of the church. The office, the role of pastor is further defined by other passages in 1 Timothy and in Titus. And not all of the teachers of the church either are qualified or want to fill the office of pastor, yet they still are God's gift to the church as teachers. Take all these things and put them together. The apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Put them all together and you notice something. This is not a haphazard list. It's not like these are like the first four or five things that came to Paul's mind, so we just threw them out there. It's more cohesive than that. Look at how they're joined. The apostles and prophets, the ones who received the word, wrote it down, and first established the church. 
the evangelists, the ones who take the word of the gospel and spread it out, spread it in unique power and success that the church grows. And then the pastors and teachers who take the word and further explain it and apply it to those who have been gathered in. There's about, there are about one thing here. There's a common element. If you want to lump them all together and put them under one big title, all of these people together are the ministry of the word. From its inception, from its inspiration and recording, to its spread, to its teaching and application, all of these people work together. God gave these people to the church because God wanted to give the scriptures to the church and the Christ to whom the scriptures testify. Through several gifted people in this category, you yourself, over the last several months, have been receiving the book of Ephesians and their glorious Christ. The Apostle Paul inspired that book. Other evangelists along the way planted this church 120 some years ago. Still others were involved in you coming to faith. And now you sit here at least this morning listening to a pastor, teacher to explain it to you. Maybe you're reading other commentaries along the side to further your own understanding of the book. He's bringing the book of Ephesians to you through this ministry of the word. All of it. He's doing it for a reason. Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Each minister of the word, such as myself, needs to see him or herself as a servant of the body. As a conduit. Think of a wire or a pipe or something. Running from Christ to Christ's body. And what we carry are the scriptures that testify to Christ. We carry it for a reason. What's interesting to note is that if you and I were to walk down the street, commonly... If somebody were to say, hey, either one of you people a minister? You might say, yeah, Pastor Steve is. Verse 12 says that you are too. You are to do the work of the ministry. My job as a minister of the word is to help prepare you to do it by soaking you in the scriptures so that you bleed them. So that you are consumed by them and gripped by them. So that you love them and the Lord they testify to more than all other earthly things, yourself included. To create this in you. That's my job. When you are thus scripture besotted and God besotted, that is soaking and dripping like an overwet sponge, it's full of water and the water is just running off the side. When you are thus gripped by the scriptures and their Christ, you will walk in a manner that is worthy of, that is worthy of being matched to the saving work he's done in your life. My job, a minister of the word's job, is to open up the treasure chest of chapters 1 to 3 for you. To point you down the right paths in chapters 4 to 6. And then your job is to do your job with a mind thus filled and consumed by these things. You will walk in a worthy manner when you're gripped like that. What you're supposed to do will get done to his glory and in his power. And the body of Christ will be built up, end of verse 12, in whatever particular ways he leads you, according to whatever particular gifts he's given you. Suppose, for instance, you have a musical gift, like perhaps we've seen this morning. The Bible and myself doesn't have anything to say about 
what you technically do with that musical gift. That's not the job that I'm supposed to fill. That's not the job the scriptures fill. What the Bible does is the Bible is going to shape your heart so that you make a joyful noise to the Lord. So that what you sing is not just technically well done, but is spiritually moving. So that it has power behind it, that the Spirit would use it. So that you would do it with all humility and gentleness and patience with those who might in some way slight you or critique you. The end result is that our worship service is a blessed communion with God, where the presence of God is among us in a palpable way. You can almost touch Him or taste Him. So the visitors will come in here and say, something is going on there. I don't know what, but something is. So the hurting will sit here and will be reminded, will be touched in a different way than just the spoken word. But the music will use God's word to somehow touch their heart and remind them of truths they already know but need to remember. They'll be inspired to trust and believe this sovereign God. It's the end result. The body is built. It is strengthened by all these different gifts. It grows as you faithfully employ your particular gift while the ministers of the word faithfully feed and equip and strengthen your hands to do so. You see the unity there, the working togetherness of it? We each have a job and we work together. And this has an ultimate goal, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is a mouthful. Essentially, it's saying the same thing three different times in three different ways. Follow the train of thought from verse 11. Christ has given some, verse 12, to equip others. See the unity there. To work at building the body until we all attain together the unity of the faith. There's unity all through that. And it's re-explained then as maturity. The one new man is made into a mature man. We all reach the fullness of the stature of Christ. Unity and maturity go like this. Diverse gifts working together in unity to attain full, unified maturity. There is a unity that has been gloriously gained. It's been created in the gospel. And we are to display it, to earnestly maintain it in the public arena. But in between here, we've got to attain it. We have to actually be unified. Last week we saw some of the characteristics, that gentleness and humility, saw some of the characteristics that need to be in our hearts. And here's another angle at how we attain that. By working together with all of our gifts, we grow up in the maturity. That's the goal. Christ gave some particular ministers of the word to fully equip and prepare the whole body to do the work of the ministry. It's the first angle. The second angle, I'm sorry. The third angle now is regarding Christ's gifts from, from verses 14 to 16. And this is very similar to verses 11 to 13, but the emphasis is a little different. Verses 11 to 13 lean on, they fall down on the side of 
He's given some to equip others. And these verses lean on, they fall down the side of, actually, he's given everybody. So a little bit different emphasis here. Christ uses the whole body to mature the whole body. Christ uses everybody, every body, to mature the whole body. We're all in this equally together. We need this. We need to grow towards this maturity because, verse 14, life is really hard for the immature child. Verse 14 reads, so that in the NIV, or, or then in the NIV, I'm sorry, when you reach that full maturity, when you get there, you want to get there because then you'll be no longer subjected to what you currently are. The tenses in this verse are all talking about what's currently going on with all of us. We are all in various degrees of childhood. We haven't yet reached that full maturity yet. We're on a scale here. And all of us are immature and vulnerable, not yet fully mature. Our life, our existence here is like that of a ship on the open sea during a great storm, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by the wind. You can't drop anchor because the ocean's infinitely deep, it seems. You're at the mercy of the storm. That's what life is like for us as immature children. It's a life of us left to ourselves, left here in our immaturity, the danger that we all currently face. Now, on the scale, of course, there are some who are more mature than others. But none of us have yet fully arrived. That's the goal that we're shooting for. So all of us are vulnerable here to every wind of doctrine, vulnerable to human cunning and scheming. Certainly, this kind of false doctrine and teaching that he's talking about here can come about accidentally. I hear it everywhere I go. I hear it on Christian radio stations and in Christian publications, in counseling sessions and in conversations in the hallway. I'm sure that I participate in it, though I don't know it, because I'm immature still. It's everywhere. And much of it, what people say and pass on, is, is inadvertent. They just don't know. That's possible. But the verse actually is pointing us in a different direction, away from inadvertent error, and towards deliberate error. Scheming is no accident. Cunning is not inadvertent. The sad fact is that there are many enemies of the cross. People who work at creating and propagating false doctrine. People who work at they are worked in by Satan, certainly, but their efforts are working at leading people astray. Denying the biblical Jesus, for instance. Replacing him with something else. The Jesus of their own imaginations. The doctrines and the words can be close, but not close enough. They will lead you astray to your destruction. They're cleverly shaped, cunning schemes that are dangerous for us. It's what the world is like. And maybe it's not the false doctrines about Jesus that are out there. Maybe it's other false teachings from the world. How about the one about American materialism and the desire and even the right to pursue the American dream? That one has us so hoodwinked that we don't even know it. 
We need other brothers and sisters, often from outside of America, to open our eyes to that. How sold we are to materialism in the church. Maybe it's false doctrines and false teachings and errors about a host of ethical things. Or wrong perspectives on certain theological systems or beliefs. The list could just go on endlessly. There's all kinds of stuff out there that would lead us astray and either damage our lives here and now, but many of them, if believed, will lead us astray for eternity. There is great danger. How are we to be protected? Well, verses 11 to 13 would, would lean on God has given some to equip others. This section leans on everybody. We are, to, we are going to avoid being destroyed by the deceitful schemes of the world when we have loving companions around us who will speak the truth to us in love. Christ uses the whole body to mature the whole body. Verse 15, rather, rather than being that ship that's tossed back and forth by the waves and by false doctrine, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How are we to avoid being tossed? We grow up in every way in Christ, in the mature Christ-likeness. That's just like verse 13. Maturity is the end goal. And how does it come about? Christ uses the whole body to speak the truth in love. There's two halves of that statement. Speak the truth in love. And you can't separate them from one another. It is not loving to speak falsehood to someone, even if it is very encouraging falsehood even if it's really what they want to hear, even if it would be a lot easier to say it, even if it more matches your experiences right now, it is not loving to speak falsehood to people. It leaves them in verse 14 and encourages them to go out to sea in the midst of the storm. To speak like that, to speak falsehood and attempt to do it in love is sin. Don't speak falsehood. On the other hand, cold, hard, straightforward truth without any regard for the well-being of the person you're talking to, without a heart attitude that is humble and gentle and is concerned with their well-being first, that kind of cold, hard truth, that also is sinful communication. This is the one I fall down on more often. I have to watch this in myself more than the other one. The way my pride works in me is that I am so self-centered sometimes that I don't even get around to thinking about loving the other person. I need to watch that. But sometimes, even when I actually do have a love and affection for the other person, I've found that my personality and my style of communication is often such that it, that does not get communicated. People don't actually know that I actually am saying this in love to them. I find that I have to double and triple check a lot of things that I say and do. Maybe that's kind of like you. It's likely that you're stronger on one of these two halves, and that's a good thing. Pay attention to the other one now, too. Grow in that. Ask Christ for grace to change you. We need you to speak the truth in love. Everybody. He's going to use everybody to grow and mature this body. It's picked up again in the end of verse 16. Look at that verse. Now, this sentence here in verse 16 is very difficult to interpret. 
depending on how your translation works, there's a lot of, there are several clauses in there. If you're looking at the ESV, that printed in your bulletin, there are about, I think, 18 words between the subject and the verb, which makes it hard to understand the sentence. So take out those 18 words in there that are between the commas, and what you get is, drop them out for just a second, and you get, from whom the whole body, that's the subject, the body, makes the body grow. That's the verb. The body makes the body grow. You hear using everybody to grow the body? The body makes the body grow. It builds itself up in love. Similar to verse 12. The members of the body engage in the work of the ministry for building up the body. Christ uses the whole body to build the body. All the words in the middle then, those 18 words in the middle, that is another explanation about how this happens. The whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Paul's using a very physical body analogy here. Think about a leg or something like that. You've got two parts. You've got the bones on either end and you've got the knee in the middle. So first he's going to talk about the knee, the joint, or technically the ligaments there. The connecting parts. The body is held together by these supporting or equipping elements. It's the part that makes the knee, makes the leg bend and makes you able to walk and run. It's the equipping part. It's verse 11's ministers of the word. And then he talks about everybody else. The verse 12 people. Working properly. The other members of the body are working properly. Doing their proper part, I think the NIV says. When you've got that working together, then the leg can become all that it's meant to be. You've got two solid bones on either end working with a joint, and you can walk and run and turn. If you just had one two-and-a-half-foot bone, you wouldn't be nearly as capable, would you? He's got a plan here for how he's worked all of this together. He's wise. His different giftings are wise and good. This is a marvelous plan. He uses the whole body to build the body. But lest we get confused about this, let me emphasize Christ uses the whole body to build the body. This body building itself up, this self-building, actually is not self-building at all. End of verse 15, the beginning of 16. We grow up into Christ from whom the whole body grows itself. The self-growing does not actually come from us. It's not about us. It comes from Him. Remember verse 7? It's His grace given to us. We once were spiritually dead and He made us alive. Even now we will remain spiritually blind unless He answers the prayer of chapter 1 and opens the eyes of our hearts. Chapter 2 tells us that we are being joined together by divine power. Being built together by divine power. Twice at the end of chapter 2. This is all happening by His power, not by ours, lest any man should boast. Our salvation and our sanctification, yes, involved our submission and our obedience. But, in the final analysis, it is the work of God. The grace of God brings us to life. The grace of God saves us. The grace of God enables us to say no to ungodliness. His grace is at work in us, saving us, fashioning us together, differently gifting us, so that we may become mature in unity. 
The body grows itself with a growth that comes from Christ's grace. All praise is due to Him. He uses the whole body to grow the whole body. And that brings us to a section of application. If it is true that He has given different gifts, in it, which it is, if it is true that He has the right to give to whomever, whenever, whatever He wants, which is true, and if He has chosen to give some to equip others, which He has, and if then He also uses everybody to build up everybody, what are we to do? Well, the first thing I've already mentioned a few times, we should look at this and we should worship and praise Him for His wise plan. We should embrace Him and trust Him for what He has done in us and for how He has gifted us. He is good. He is good to you. Whatever He's given you. But we should also note, moving down from the praise now to what we should actually do physically, we should note we are to embrace these gifts together. The whole thing is about body. The whole thing is about togetherness. And you must reject, reject American individualistic Christianity. The type of Christianity that says it's about the single Christian. The type of Christianity that puts the Christian at the center of the world and puts that man or woman as a consumer, looking out at everything else and deciding, what do I feel like today? Opening up the refrigerator, I feel like a cup of that and three of those and half a pint of this. That's what I'll take for myself. Every church and parachurch and book and sermon and radio station exists to serve you. You're at the center of it. American individualism has dominated our Christianity for too long. Reject that and instead realize that God's intention is body. He didn't gift you for you. He gifted you for me and everybody else. And he gifted me for you. Together. That's the point. It's a body. This is your family. If you're affiliated here, this is your family. We need you. We need your gifts. We need you to be involved with us. We need you to walk with God so that what you bring to us is not tainted or twisted. You know, if I'm trying to play a round of golf with only a seven iron, it doesn't do me any good if somebody gives me a bent five iron with no grips. I'm not going to use it. I prefer just the seven. We need you to walk in holiness and in gentleness and humility. And then we need you to get involved. And you need us if you hope to walk in godliness and holiness and gentleness. That implies that you know who you are and you know what your gifts are. You need to figure out what your gifts are. Because we need you working as you are best made. Now we need you working in your weaknesses too. I don't have the gift of giving, but I'm supposed to give and do. I don't have the gift of evangelism, but I share my faith. 
We all do everything, but some of us should do what we're, what we're gifted in. And you need to figure out what that is. And there are a number of books and tests that you can take that will help you figure that out. But ironically, the best way is the body. Get involved in the body. Do a whole scat of things and observe what happens. What does God seem to bless? What gives you delight? What do people respond to you and say, I was, I was blessed by that myself. Way to go. Keep doing that. That affirmation of the body is the primary way that God informs us about what our gifts are. The books and tests are helpful. I'm not bad-mouthing them, but I'm lifting up the, the role of the body in this. Get involved, figure out who you are, hone that gift, and then deploy it in our midst. We need that. You need us. It is possible to drive a car or ride a bike with only first gear. And you can play a one-string guitar, and you can play a round of golf with just a seven-iron, but why in the world would you want to? God made you for the body, and he made the body for you. By grace, he has given you certain gifts. Use them to his glory. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.